Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. And I'm on the line uh, in Alameda, I believe it's still Alameda, with uh, the czar of noir himself, Eddie Muller. Eddie, it's been far too long. I think the last time we saw each other, uh, you uh, was at the Cinema Lit Salon, and we were showing uh, L.A. Confidential, and you told me you had a special surprise guest, and that madman showed up, James Elroy, and absolutely <laughs> blew the joint away. Yeah, that uh, El- Elroy and I have become pretty good uh, pals over the years. Anyway, it's it's good to talk to you, Terry. Likewise. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite a while. Yeah. Well, as I, I can't as even I remember was... when that was. Well, that's got to be 20, 15 to 20 years ago. I've been in Paris now for 10 years. And I remember, our, you know, when we first met, I believe it was 1998, Dark City was being published by St. Martin's. And I rented the uh, Lark Theater in Larkspur. We put 250 tushies into the seats uh, to see out of the past. And you and I talked about it. And the book was supposed to be there for sale. But, of course, uh, it was being printed in China. It never made it. So I held up a, a dog-eared uh, galley. And uh, I kind of feel like like the midwife here. I don't take any any credit or responsibility for you, but uh, before this, you know, this this passion developed into this dream, you know, I was there. And then I, you also remember the night at uh, a miserable rainy night at the Temple Emmanuel with uh, Lisa Ryan, Robert Ryan's daughter. Mm-hmm. Which we showed <laughs> we showed a cross a crossfire, and and she was so shy, sandwiched between the two of us. But afterwards, we took her out and fed her a couple of scotches and loosened her up. So we have got a lot of history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so funny. You can claim that uh, you were, that was the first public event. The the thing at the Lark Theater was the first public event I did in support of my book. And you can say how you were in on the ground floor because you had a public event where there was no book. <laughs> exactly, but your, we, we got your, through your it. Your public and, events for me predate the actual existence of the book. That, that's yeah, when, how that uh, worked. The foundation goes back to 2005. But when was the first? Well, first of all, let's, let's talk to people that don't know uh, what you're all about. Uh, let's talk about the. Well, let's define terms. Let's begin with the term film noir. We're going to go back that far. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have uh, time, Eddie. There's, you know, we're not. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. Well, and you're you're in the city that sort of coined the term, right? So exactly. you're you're at it's kind of like zero. the word entrepreneur. It exists in French, but the uh, the personality doesn't exist, and to some degree, that's not entirely true. We have elevated to the gallows, but please define <laughs> film noir for the uninitiated. Well, uh, film noir was a, a in, for our purposes, uh, it was a cinema artistic cinematic movement uh, that took hold. Most people equate it uh, to Hollywood, and it would be in the World War II era, World War II and post-war era. It was really the French who coined the term when um, there was a, you know, during the occupation, uh, there were no American films uh, being shown in France. And then after the war, as part of the liberation, the cinemas started showing all the movies that they had missed. And uh, some very savvy critics realized that there was a whole change in the style of filmmaking in Hollywood uh, toward a much darker, uh, you know, a, a mood 
clearly reflective of uh, the fact that the whole world is at war. Uh, and and they coined it film noir, you know, black film. So, um, and, and then it just, there, there's a lot of other factors involved in the creation of it, but generally that's what people think about as film noir, that cinematic movement. And, I, you know, in the intervening years, I have learned that, um, you know, that's a very simplified take on it. Uh, these movies weren't just being made in the United States and in Hollywood. Uh, but there was cross-pollination all around because now I show films from all over the place, you know, from Japan and Mexico and Argentina and Germany and Italy. Well, I recently France, saw Los, Los Tallos Amargos, which we can talk about later, which was a, a, just blew me away. Fernando Ayala. Yeah, well, that, um, that's which a I good place. I believe you restored. To, correct. And that, that is... Uh, so, so what happened was um, I had written this book about uh, film noir, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, and then was invited to start programming film festivals based on that book, some of the more obscure titles that I had uncovered in writing that book. And, out, and they were very successful. The festivals were very successful. And out of that, um, I, I determined, you know, it, it didn't feel right that I would not profit from my passion for this stuff, but knowing that these films were so obscure and so hard to find, um, I decided let's create a nonprofit foundation where all the proceeds that we take in from these uh, exhibition of the films would be used to find and restore films that were lost. And, and we've got a nice rhythm going, had a nice rhythm going before <laughs> this pandemic. Uh, well, there'll be the film noir every... that follows this experience. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, but anyway, it really worked very well. So we'd have a festival that would try, and then out of that, it started in Los Angeles and then uh, moved to San Francisco. The Crown Jewel was the festival we would do called Noir City every year at the Castro Theater. And and out of the success and the revenue generated by these festivals, there's now eight of them around the country, uh, we, we would then find and restore a film every year and then premiere that restoration at the film festival in San Francisco the following year. So and the sadly, film that you met, yeah, go ahead. You were going to be here this year. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, we were actually going to do a Noir City in Paris. Right. Uh, well, maybe next and year. Which, which, we, which we will still do. I mean, there's no question we're going to do that. We're we'll looking and, forward um, to that. Yeah, and in the uh, and I've I've done some stuff in Paris before at the at the Cinematheque. I've I've done a. Uh, series that was called like Black Pearls, and uh, they invited me to come in, and uh, that was I'm going to say maybe six years ago now. I think it was 2011. Well, you, were you uh, also uh, not at the maybe. Institut Lumière in Lyon with Thierry Frémaux and Bertrand? Yeah, I have done uh, that uh, a couple of times, and uh, yeah, and I've done the thing at the Cinematheque, and I I've become kind of a regular in Bologna at the Il Cinema Retrovato Festival in Bologna. Uh, I was going to do something there uh, next month, but that is not happening now. So uh, everything is on hold. But we'll be back. We'll be back. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you know, we both uh, share a passion for Billy Wilder, whom I interviewed when he was 80, 88, I guess. And un unwittingly, uh, he was just set out to make a great film. He pretty much invented the genre. All the elements are there. The the narration, the uh, fact that we know who the killer is at the very beginning, uh, a miserable end, uh, you know, a, a sexy woman, 
he set the template um, unknowingly. And of course, that great Miklos uh, Rosa score and Johnny Seitz's cinematography. Uh, talk about Billy Wilder and let's talk about double indemnity. Uh, well, what I'm going to suggest, uh, because I, if you've seen my, uh, my show that I do on Turner Classic Movies, I, I go out of my way to give credit to the writers of all these things. And while Wilder is a great writer, I'm going to suggest that James M. Cain, who wrote the Double Indemnity story, and of course also The Postman Always Rings Twice and Mildred Pierce and Love's Lovely Counterfeit and all these other things, that Kane was sort of the architect of the whole noir uh, concept in America, but Billy Wilder is the guy who latched onto it and figured out how to make it, how to sell tickets with it for, for the kind of movie that was not considered an A picture before that, right? So by his convincing uh, Barbara Stanwyck to make that movie and Fred McMurray and Edward G. Robinson and Paramount, and Paramount. to make that yeah. film, yeah. Um, you know, that's what really created the movement. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that Double Indemnity was the first film noir, but it was the film that triggered the movement that that made this such a thing in Hollywood in the post-war era. So oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, he he is the guy. There's, as I remember saying to you at that dinner, that I long ago, uh, <laughs> I have always felt that Billy Wilder is the, you know, the greatest triple threat in movie history as a writer, producer, director. Well, he, you're not gonna, you're not to convince uh, me. I mean, yeah. I, I remember when Fernando Trebo won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film for uh, Belle Époque. Uh, right after uh, Tom Hanks had invoked the son of the deity about three times in a two-minute acceptance speech and said, I would thank God, pause, but I don't believe in him. I believe in Billy Wilder. Thank you, Billy Wilder. <laughs> and I'm not, I can let Billy live with that one. But I mean, I think it was perfectly attuned to his acerbic wit. And I, I guess, you know, go back a little further because we can go back to Fritz Lang and M and all the elements in German expressionism. Uh, Billy coming out of that environment uh, it certainly, I think, reflected a lot of that. And it, as a lot of those guys did, the uh, Jewish refugees that escaped the Nazis and, and brought a certain Middle European sensibility and sophistication and darkness into their work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's not just Wilder. I mean, there was a whole, a whole crew that left Germany uh, with the rise of the Reich and came to America, you know, Otto Preminger and Edgar Ulmer and Fred Zinnemann, Robert, Robert Siadmak, who is my personal favorite as a uh, as his noir filmography i think is the best of all wilder of course has a double indemnity uh you know sunset boulevard a lot of people consider ace in the hole to be a film noir as well those are three great films but siad mac wow i mean he had well, a for run example, there give us an example of siad mac's work uh phantom lady the killers crisscross the file on Thelma jordan cry of the city uh, Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, a beautiful noirish adaptation of Somerset Mom called uh, Christmas Holiday with Deanna Durbin and Gene Kelly. You would not <laughs> think it's noir, but it's totally noir. It's fan. Gene Kelly plays a, a you know a homicidal mama's boy. Uh, it's it's a spectacular film and one that now has sort of gone missing. Uh, there there's all well, kinds of rights issues with that, so that that's one that we're going to start working on figuring out how to how to you know get that film out of bondage, out of rights bondage. You know that would that would be great. Uh, you know your your childhood 
was kind of a precursor. Your, your father, Eddie Muller, not senior or one or whatever, uh, was a boxing writer. And you wrote a wonderful book that I, I love uh, called The Distance, uh, kind of mm -hmm. homage to your father and the fight scene in San Francisco. Talk a little bit about that book, your father and the environment, because I see the photograph of him with his three-piece suit and his tie. He's kind of channeling you on... Uh, on Noir Alley. <laughs> well, uh, now you've got a time loop happening. That's uh, it's it's the other way around. Yeah, it is kind of amazing. Uh, my my dad uh, was a newspaper man. That's how he would describe himself. Um, he well, had none one of this employer. Journalist nonsense. Uh, a newspaper. No, he was a newspaper man, and he uh, he started as a copy boy at the San Francisco Examiner way back in the twenties when it was the flagship of the Hearst Empire. And that's the only place he ever worked his entire life. He, he went from being a copy boy. His dad was a pressman down in the, in, you know, running the presses, printing the paper. Uh, his brother also worked at the newspaper. And that was it. He had that one employer his entire life, and he ended up becoming known as, uh, you know, the dean of boxing scribes on the West Coast. And, uh, and I grew up in that environment. And it was an odd mix because uh, this was in San Francisco and I was very young and impressionable during the whole summer of love and the flower power generation and all that stuff. But I also was exposed to this other side of San Francisco that was, you know, losing traction at that point, which, you know, were the older guys in the fight game and all the Dashiell Hammett, Damon Runyon, that whole style uh, was hugely influential on me, obviously. And, um, you know, that, that's why I always felt that writing that novel was sort of my, my life's goal in some respects, uh, just to pay tribute to that, that era, that style um, that, that I saw slipping away in the 1970s. Uh, it took me a long time to write that book. Well, uh, I remember how proud you were because you're published by Scribner. Yeah, the house that Hemingway built. Yeah, uh, th it was pretty great. And uh, there, there was a follow-up shadow boxer, and then, um, and now we're waiting for number three, which has been a long, long time. Oh, on uh, Billy Nichols. Yeah, I'm about. I'm a little more than halfway through the third one. Oh, I'll look forward to that. But one. then all this, uh, but then all this other stuff happened. Right. <laughs> what kind of? Well, you, you, your follow-up to Dark City was Dark City Dames. I think there were eight broads as we would call them in those days or your father would call them uh, talk about some of those gals uh yeah that was interesting because an, an offshoot of doing those film festivals i mentioned was that especially the one in hollywood uh a lot of these actresses were still around they were in their you know 80s by that point uh marie windsor and evelyn keys Anne savage colleen gray jane greer um uh Audrey Totter, and they came out to uh, appear with the films, and I was able to interview them, but then out of that grew this book called Dark City Dames um, that will eventually have another printing. Um, and it's funny, you know, Dark City has been published, I think, three times in France, uh, th uh, three different publishers, but uh, Dark City Dames has never been published in France. I don't, I don't know why that is, but... Oh. Um, it, it was a fabulous experience getting to know these women and having them really open up about their lives. And, and the thing that made that book very special to me is that, um, 
it, the book isn't just about them and their time in Hollywood as stars, because the the structure of the book was such that the first six, it's six women, and the first six chapters are all about their life in Hollywood when they were in their prime. And then the last six chapters are is all about their lives when Hollywood sort of kicked them to the curb. The and boy. so, yeah. And so the, the book really becomes about how do, how do women in this culture uh, that obsesses over beauty and celebrity and everything. How how did they have to adjust their lives once all that was taken away from them? And and it was uh, you know very profound uh, experience talking to these women and and seeing how they had to adapt and how they had to overcome. You know, no nobody recognized them anymore. They could go anywhere. I could go shopping with Jane Greer and nobody would know who the hell she was. Well, you know, um, how uh, I was going to say. How close was were their lives to the lives of, of the women they portrayed on screen? Oh my God, not at all. Okay, not at all. I mean, Anne Savage, who is famous for her role in Detour, where she plays Vera, <coughs> the murderous hitchhiker, um, she had a, a hot streak in her that was undeniable. Uh, but that's the that's the closest. She was fabulous. I loved her to pieces, but. That that's the closest that anybody came to to actually exhibiting anything remotely like the characters they played on screen. I mean, Audrey Audrey Totter was probably the greatest vixen in film noir, and she was just the sweetest, gentlest, uh, most serene woman I think I've ever met. She's an actress. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Jane Greer. We go back to that night with Out of the Past, which to me is a quintessential noir. The uh, but when Jane Greer walks into that cafe in Mexico with the, the shadow and the white hat, and you know, Mitchum is no tough guy. He doesn't stand a chance. This broad is going to eat him alive. <laughs> and you know it <laughs> immediately. I mean, that look was just a killer. Yeah. Yeah. She was 22 years old when she made that movie. Can you believe it? Oh, yeah. 22 years old. That's what that's what sort of astounds me about that. That whole era is how uh, fast those people grew up. I think Mitchum was 29, Kirk Douglas was 26, and Jane Greer was 22 when they made that movie. Nobody had yet reached their 30th birthday, and they're playing the most world-weary characters imaginable. Oh, it's, it's one. It's one. Well, that's Jacques Teneur, Maurice's uh, son, to bring a little, yeah, a little French into it. But no, Jane was. Uh, that look is just the killer. I mean, to me, she turns uh, Barbara Stanwyck into into Pablum. Felix Dietrichson couldn't hold a candle to this woman. <laughs> everybody, everybody has their preferences in yeah, terms of the a stone fatale, killer. You know? That woman. Uh, yeah. Well, since we, you know, we mentioned film noir, French word, Nico Franck, uh, and I, I think I alluded to Elevator to the Gallows, the uh, the film with by by Louis Malle and with uh, the beautiful Jeanne Moreau just kind of patrolling the sidewalk all weekend, waiting for her lover. Talk about yes. that film. Yes. And I guess we put it up there with the pantheon of French uh, noirs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that film. In fact, I just showed it uh, recently on my program here in the States on Noir Alley. It was the first foreign language film that I had shown. And um, I, I, I'm a little curious about that film. There, I, I love it. Uh, it interests me that it is not considered to be part of the French New Wave. That most things written about that film, it I, I guess Louis Mal just didn't subscribe to the same school as all those other guys, as Truffaut and Godard and Rivette and 
Uh, well, I think he had a different experience. You know, you alluded at the beginning, uh, the, uh, the, the post-war. I talk about this quite a bit when I'm taking people around Paris and showing what's going on. Uh, you know, during the war, Continental Films, uh, Alfred Grevin was running uh, film production here in France. And I just had a conversation with Tavernier uh, last week in who made a film called Laissez Passer. Well, American films were embargoed. And unlike today, where everything opens simultaneously around the world, everything was platformed in those days. It would open in New York, L.A., then go to second yeah. uh, cities like Chicago. Eventually, a year or whatever later, it would get to Europe. And so these kids from about 1938 on uh, until the aftermath of the war had never seen Stagecoach, had never seen Double Indemnity, had never seen Howard Hawks films. Right. And, and they were just blown away. So when they went to the street with uh, uh, Dekai uh, shooting uh, Breathless and uh, the Quatre Coup, it, it just completely mm -hmm. opened up their mind. I, I think that Mao is... He also, and he also shot Elevator to the Gallows. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, with the Miles Davis score, because Miles, speaking of scoring, was here uh, conducting an affair with Juliette Greco very publicly, which would have had yeah. him at least lynched uh, in, in America at the time. But I think Mao was more of a, a traditional filmmaker. When you look at films like uh, La Combe Lucien, Au Voile les Enfants, or that wonderful little thing he did in Atlantic City with Bert... Uh, yeah, uh, with yeah. Bert and uh, Susan Sarandon. Yeah, I, no, I think I, he would I, be more of a—I want to say mainstream, but a, a classicist in terms of the way he conducted his his work. Uh, I, I would tend to agree with that. I find it interesting that a major part of Elevator to the Gallows is that subplot about the kids stealing the car and shooting somebody by accident, which is essentially the plot of Breathless. <laughs> That would come out after. I, I think in the states, the the way critics in the states dealt with the new wave, the timing was all out of whack because, uh, you know, the Godard and the Truffaut films got released over here, like you were saying, the way these things roll out. But Elevator to the Gallows did not get released in the states when it was made. It it waited and wasn't released here until 1961 uh, as the under the title Frantic. So at that point, it looked like they said, oh, he's just a copycat or something, whatever. I don't think the film got the respect it deserved, it deserved when it was absolutely. released. Uh, well, I, the poster, I, I have the poster on my wall here because Criterion, my friend Lenny Borger, I believe, subtitled it. And Criterion does these wonderful restorations, Rialto pictures. And yeah. uh, I've got a gigantic, I've got, you know, she's on my wall. Uh, yeah. I, I and she is extraordinary. She is extraordinary in that film because, as you said, she does nothing but just walk around the streets of well, Paris. Maybe we should That's explain to the audience that doesn't know. Talk, explain the film a little bit. Well, the film just has to do with a, a couple that are having an affair, a businessman who decides to uh, to murder his his boss, but he bungles it and gets trapped in the in the uh, office building over the weekend uh, in in the elevator, and his uh, his. Uh, lover, Jean Moreau, is wondering what the hell has gone on. And she believes that he's left her for another woman because these kids have stolen his car and are joyriding around with it. And so it's these two plots that sort of diverge and then reconnect at opportune times in the narrative. But that that's basically it. So her entire thing is is wondering what has actually happened. And she is phenomenal. Oh, at conveying so much just with her face and with uh, Henri Dekai's cinematography is extraordinary. 
um, you know, I, I love that film. And the, and the Miles score with it is uh, the, maybe one of the most evocative oh, it's, scores it's perfect. ever. It, it, it's a perfect, absolutely perfect film. And <clears throat> the noir sense of... <clears throat> Of the of the killing and being stuck in the in the building over the weekend, it's just, it's it's a great flick. Uh, you, you talk about cinematography, and uh, you're a big fan of uh, Musaraka and obviously John Alton, uh, painting with light. Uh, talk about them and talk about uh, cinematography in uh, in noir films. Well, I think that, you know, I I have this argument all the time uh, because I have a somewhat elastic definition of noir because starting starting from writing that book which was kind of hardcore noir my mission has somewhat changed over the years because now i feel i'm not just trying to talk about noir but i'm trying to get a whole other generation of people to watch older movies and not dismiss black and white right a lot of people think of film noir strictly in terms of those fabulous cinematographers and the black and white uh, you know, the chiaroscuro cinematography and all, and which I love, and it's all fantastic. And it was part of the, the movement was that every studio in Hollywood that was making these had like their best noir cinematographer, you know, their in-house guy, you know. Uh, Musaraka was at RKO, as was Harry Wilde. Uh, you know, Woody Bradell was at Universal. Norbert Brodeen was at Fox. Uh, along with Joe McDonald, who was really great. Alton, who was probably the best of them all, was a freelancer, and he would he shot more low-budget stuff and bounced around uh, to, to give really low-budget films the, the best possible visual sense. Uh, you know, they would hire Alton, and he would come in and be the highest-paid member of the crew. Well, he, RKO Alton, was not known for spending a lot of money, and a lot of these films were produced at RKO. Yeah, and that's where Musaraka and and George Discant and uh, and Harry Wilde were the three guys. They they basically did all the noir at RKO. Uh, but like I say, Alton was was amazing because he would go, you know, Reliance Pictures and Fidelity Pictures and all, all these low rent houses would pay him, uh, you know, more than the director to come in and make the thing work. And he was incredibly fast. I mean, he had such a, a sense for how to, not just the images, but how to achieve the images in a very systematic way. He would dictate to the director, the, this is the order we're going to shoot everything. And he would just walk, he'd have the whole thing set up when everybody came on the set and he would just walk around and the director would say, print it. And then he would just flip the switches for the next shot and the whole thing would be relit in a different way that was spectacular and and he just had it all in his head, which is well, why he was worth whatever he got because time is money. My, my son's exactly. a shooter, and uh, I understand how critical it is to get the work done correctly uh, with talent, but uh, quickly. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting how you can because the probably the cinematographer that to me most resembles Alton in the finished product is Stanley Cortez, <laughs> who shot who shot the magnificent Ambersons and and other you know. Uh, Night of the Hunter. Another stuff, great but... Mexican actor, Ricardo Cortez, or Jacob yes, Krantz, yes. as we know him in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, he was incredibly slow, and uh -huh. he did not have the career he should have had because he just couldn't do it efficiently. 
you know, he started shooting Chinatown for Polanski, and Polanski fired him after like five days. Said, "I, I we can't work like this. This guy is taking all day." Uh, too bad, but he was great. I want to talk a bit about the about the, about the foundation, which is obviously uh, when your father died, he left you a fortune because you're doing all of this pro bono <laughs> work. Or, or is Kathleen out there, you know, waiting tables? <laughs> no, it's uh, no. She has her own business. She has been a very successful businesswoman. My wife, uh, good, and and she really allowed me to sort of step away from American corporate culture and do my own thing because she had formed this nice bedrock of financial security beneath us. And now I have to say, everything has kind of flipped. Uh, you know, we're, with this pandemic, we're really struggling to see if her her business is going to survive because it's changing everything. You know, it's changing retail. It's changing uh, the way things are sold. Now everything is going online um, and, and it's tough. And, and in the meantime, I've taken this like hobby of mine and turned it into basically a cottage industry where I'm now on television and I publish books and I do all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it actually is paying at this point, you know, and, and no, it's great. To, I, no, but I have to take my hat off to you because I mean, I, you know, I knew you were a talented guy when we met, but I, I'm blown away at the, the depth, what you can do in six minutes to describe a film that no one has ever seen is, is astonishing. <laughs> uh, complete with the date, September 7th, 1944, the world changed when double indemnity premiered, uh, and on and on and on. And they're not just, uh, pedagogic, uh, uh, discussion, but really interesting, informative stuff that really helps you to watch the film. I, I, I just phenomenal. I, I you know, I thank you. What else thank can you I say? It's no, it's, I well, I'll tell you what else. What else uh, I can say is how appreciative I am uh, when Turner Classic Movies hired me to do this. I basically wrote a test script for them about the Maltese Falcon, and I just said, "This is what I want to do." And they didn't change a word of it. And it was twice as long, if not longer, than, than the usual intros they have on the air. And they said, if you can do this, um, you know, because <laughs> we're not going to cut this up. I mean, you have to be able to do this straight through just as a stand-up thing. And uh, I, I did it. And they said, you know what, we're going to we're going to shoot this with two cameras now, uh, <laughs> which is interesting because I'm the only host on on that network that has a two camera setup when he does a thing because I because I talk so much. Now, are you but actually halfway through like we got to give him a different look. So turn to the second camera. And keep are, are you looking at a teleprompter or just just coming out of your head? Oh, that's my secret, okay. Terry. That's I won't, my I won't secret. tell anyone. All right. <laughs> but it, no, but it's it's it, it is it's it really is remarkable, and I uh, well, you know, it's not an accident. I you know, you've taken uh, something that you're passionate about, and without having a blueprint, you know, when either one of us went to the Harvard Business School, uh, you no. figured out a way to to create a life that's very satisfying to you, and I'm sure it's very gratifying. I see the uh, the comments on Facebook, the the amount of pleasure and, and knowledge that you shared with uh, with your fans is is phenomenal. It's so. Uh, you know, once it's, again, it's, I it's take very, my it, Yeah, I appreciate that. It's very nice because, yeah, I do get some really nice feedback, um, surprising stuff that happens. Uh, I got a fan letter a few weeks ago from David Mamet, 
which I thought was really amazing. I got a type, you know, he typed out a, a thing on his manual typewriter just about film noir and how much he loves the show and how much he enjoys asking a lot of fanboy questions about movies. No, and no stuff. profanity. No, there was no profanity. I've, I have subsequent to that. I've actually, uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting David and hanging out with him a bit. And, uh, that's all confined to the stage plays. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, let's get, I want to get a little plug in for the Film Noir Foundation. Let's go back to yes. that again. Uh, talk about that and let's tell the listeners uh, how they can get, be in touch with you. I, I, let's get out the uh, website information uh, so that people can be, uh, be aware of what you're doing, uh, see the films at, at TCM, and, uh, and certainly uh, contribute to this uh, cause that uh, we, we're both very passionate about. Okay. Uh, well, the foundation was started in 2005, um, like I say, because we these festivals were successful and I wanted to figure out a way to give give back. Uh, and it's the Film Noir Foundation, and you can find the website is filmnoirfoundationallruntogether.org because we're a nonprofit, so it's .org. And we raise money. We, re we find – it's like a detective story, really – we find uh, elements of these films that have gone, that are not in circulation. Like they, they're not screenable elements of the movies, whether it's a dupe negative, we're, we're lucky we find an original camera negative, or maybe just a print somewhere in some archive around the world. We have found a number of things in Europe. Um, and, and then we work with our colleagues at the UCLA Film and Television Archive or the Library of Congress or so, to, um, to restore these films. Um, it, and it's very, very gratifying. And it's an amazing thing because as you know, the essence of the whole noir is sort of a nihilist take on the world. Like if it's going to go wrong, you know, if anything's going to happen, it's going to go wrong. It's sort of a godless take on existence. You know, you can't it was expect any kind of, prophecy. Yeah. You can't expect any kind of divine intervention to save you. All humans carry the seeds of their own destruction within them. This is what it's all. But I have to tell you, running this foundation has just brought me so much uh, friendship and gratitude and everything from people all around the world who love this stuff just as passionately as I do. And we have, you know, an ever growing uh, membership of people who donate to this. I, I was stunned when this pandemic started, the influx of funding that we got because people were like, well, now you don't have your eight festivals this year to raise money. So here's some money, you know, because they didn't want us to stop finding and rescuing the films. So I, I thought that was absolutely spectacular. Yeah, I, I in spite of all, you know, I'm probably a little bit like you. I'm a little bit, uh, a little cynical, but I, I've seen lots of examples of what you're talking about where people that you didn't expect to step to the plate did. And I think you may have mentioned in a conversation with someone at UCLA, it, you know, it's like the ten, the $10 investor, uh, you know, the $1,500, $2,000 person, it doesn't mean anything. But somebody, you know, fork over $10 that they, they don't really have uh, demonstrates their, their passion and their respect for what you do. I, I could not agree more. That's exactly it. And, you know, people... <laughs> I could get I could turn very political here very quickly on you, but it's interesting that people ever since we started were saying, well, look, you need to write a grant to get money from this corporation. And I would say, no, I don't I don't want to be beholden to these corporations. I don't trust them. I don't think it means anything to them. And so uh, 
you, what you're saying is absolutely true. Uh, this organization is the bedrock of this organization is $20 donations, $50 donations. Every so often, somebody will give $500. And then it, every so often, and the stories are, are classic, I'll encounter somebody who is like, oh, my God, I love this stuff so much. And, you know, I happen to be running this Institute of Epidemiology or something. And, you know, they'll drop 50 grand on you. And it's like, holy cow. But that's, I don't really go out searching for that. You know, I don't, I don't go around hat in hand begging money from rich people. It's, it's people who love this stuff and they give us what they can. And and, and just as you said, Terrence, it's the person who has a hundred dollars in the bank and gives you 10 of it. That's unbelievable. That's like, oh my God! That's We're giving, giving till it hurts. So why, yeah. why don't we uh, let, let, let's uh, why don't we end on that note? I uh, Noir Alley at TCM, uh, Dark City, yeah. which I believe you still have the rights to. It's being republished. It will be uh, out in 2021. It will be a revised and expanded edition. Look in fact, that is what I am. And, and yeah. once again, Film Noir Foundation. Uh, for those who can't spell, F-I-L-M-N-O-I-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Of course, nobody listening cannot spell, but I wanted to get it out there again. Eddie, it's great to catch up. I'm delighted with your success. Keep keep it up. And uh, uh, when you come to Paris, we'll absolutely do something together, apart from having a couple of pops and a few cigars. Perfect. Sounds great. Thank Stay you healthy. so much for reaching out, Terrence. Thanks.